And now, coming to you from two socially distant towers, it's Gary K. Wolf in the Coot Street Motel 6 East and Jonathan Strahan in the Coot Street Motel 6 West coming to you live from totally different Gershwin rooms down some kind of Zoomy channel on the Coot Street Podcast. Hello. And we're back the first time in a couple of weeks. Yes. And it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Lord as we speak. God, it as has been. Yeah, it's 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 the the word gets the world gets weirder and weirder, um, and what's interesting to me is that as these things go on and what we're getting now are mass protests. I'm one is going on a half mile from my apartment right now, uh, which may turn violent, probably already has. And so you have a lot of things out of the late '60s. You have things like Escape from New York, and yep. as we move further and further into one catastrophe after another people start hauling out different old science fiction books and movies that are appropriate to it. it's like right now thinking oh the old uh, plague novels and the stand and contagion stuff that was like um, that was like last month's yep. science fiction shelf now we have to look at the decay of society violent uprisings it's true it's true and look, i mean even as we speak right now as you say there's terrible terrible and i wouldn't want to be glib or humorous about it for a fraction of a second, terrible things happening in the United States, and the nebulas are being presented right now. And so mm -hmm. we would give us a quick shout out to Neil Gaiman, A.T. Greenblatt, Kat Rambo, and Fran Wilde, all of whom, as of this moment, have been uh, announced as new nebula uh, recipients. And a special, special shout out to Last Master Bujold, who is the new Sifwa W.A. Damon Knight Grandmaster uh, for the year. And that's a well-deserved award, and there's a unarguable still a, a couple yeah. more awards to be to be presented, and I'm sure at some point we'll talk about those. But before we even get to that, there's something I really do want to say, quite seriously. Okay, that is, good. I want to set, sort of send out my best wishes, and I think yours to everybody caught up in the craziness right now. I want to send it, just express sort of sadness at the loss of Uncle Hugo's bookstore in Minneapolis and the community that surrounds that, mm -hmm. and to send out thoughts and good wishes and whatever support we can to Greg Ketter and the community that surrounds Dreamhaven Books in uh, Minneapolis, because both of them have been long-time stalwarts of the science fiction community, particularly in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Greg Ketter has been at every convention I've ever been to, just about outside of uh, Australia, representing Dreamhaven Books, and so very serious, you know, sort of love, oh, yeah. want, good, good wishes, etc., to, to them. Absolutely, and and Greg is an old friend who was a, a judge in the World Fantasy Awards mm. at the same time I was. So I chat with him every time. He is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the most uh, prominent, certainly the most prominent science fiction bookseller in the Midwest, and he only has a couple of colleagues that are of comparable stature on the west coast and maybe the east coast but yeah he's he's, he's one of the grand uh, figures of science fiction conventions and i'm really upset that this that i've only been in the store once or twice but it's yeah. uh, and many years ago but still it's a sort of thing that's too rare these days even before this sort of thing happens yeah and i for one will be looking out for ways that the science fiction community at large can reach out and help and support greg and whatever the the people at Uncle Hugo's choose to do, I hope that there is insurance and legal support, and that mm -hmm. this terrible situation comes to an end as soon as possible. So, I mean, that's that's terrible and sad. Um, yeah, it's just a very very difficult, strange time. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I mean, like, I've got to say the other thing that's kind of interesting about not that specifically, but that generically, is how global 
the problems we are facing today are. I spent about 20, 30 minutes a few days ago talking to Indra Pamit Das in Bangalore. Mm-hmm. And Indra is facing the after effects of a cyclone, as well as, frankly, crazy political leadership and terrible political things, as well as climate change, as well as the pandemic. And a lot of those things now genuinely seem to be facing us all kind of at the same time. It, it, it's, it's one world after all. Well, to use a phrase from Robert Heinlein, which was conscripted by William Gibson, maybe this is the year of the jackpot. Could we survive <laughs> that, my friend? Could we survive that? It's it's an odd thing, but it's and it's it's not one of Heinlein's better known stories, and um, and yet I'm certain that uh, that Gibson was alluding to it. But the idea that statistically is it possible for all these bad things to happen at once? Because as I've uh, I've talked to several people over the last uh, several weeks, as you have, uh, and I've been reminded that yes, we're going to have. Uh, more hurricanes and, and typhoons. We're going to have more fires. You and Australia are going to have more fires. California is going to have more fires. We've even had a couple of minor earthquakes in this, which haven't even made the news. Krakatoa went off, Gary. Krakatoa went off. <laughs> there you go. The, the New Zealand Prime Minister was f- filmed live on television during a, an interview this week, during, being shaken during by... Paper, yeah. An earthquake. This is it. This is it. It's birds and snakes falling from the sky next. However, I got to tell you, I'm not pessimistic, Gary. I don't feel pessimistic. I feel. You're going to... okay. I don't. I, I feel. In fact, the the ten minute with series that we've been doing has mm. filled me with a kind of optimism because I've been reaching out and talking to people. I'm not going to say around the world. That's excessive. In North America, in Australia, in the UK, and just now in mm. India. And it gives me a feeling that at least we're, we're all going through this together, that there is an underpinning decency to what everybody's doing. Uh, and I think that's encouraging and rewarding. And I think, I think also, like, I, you know, I keep saying, I'm completely persuaded by Stan Robinson's view that it's the moral obligation of anyone in society today to be as optimistic as possible. And, when I turn to what we're here to talk about, science fiction, generally mm. it makes me feel good. Uh, not in a Pollyanna-ish way, but, you know, I've been reading stuff lately. I just, I've been spending some time reading um, uh, Elizabeth Baer's most recently released novel, Ancestral Night, which mm. is a stirring space opera adventure. And look, any stirring space opera adventure is by its nature pretty much epic fantasy, mm. but it's enjoyable and engaging and rewarding. And I find myself going out and stopping at bookstores and coming back with books that I never intended to buy. You know, Fonda Lee has me chasing down copies of The Ways of the House Husband because who doesn't want to read about a Yakuza who retires to look after the house, right? And then brings <laughs> his wonderful Yakuza negotiating skills to getting the right price when you're buying rice and, uh, and looking after the family and making sure that breakfast gets delivered or lunch gets delivered. All this kind of stuff. It's great. So there's stuff to read. There's stuff to be engaged by. There's oceans of terrible television and a tiny little batch of fantastic television. Mm. Life, that kind of stuff is okay. And perhaps maybe I can be a little bit of a Pollyanna because I'm living in a place where the pandemic has just about been eliminated and life is beginning to return to normal. Uh, And because maybe I've taken the point of view that it's time to just 
just turn the news off. Right? One of the people who's going to be coming up on the podcast tomorrow, if everything goes out to mm-hmm. schedule, is the fabulous Simon Ings. And mm-hmm. you should be jealous of my conversation with Simon Ings. I would be. I wanted to meet Simon Ings and almost did it a couple of years ago, but didn't. And we definitely have to have him on the podcast again, together, the pair of us, because Simon has things to say about the state of science fiction, Gary. We didn't really touch uh-huh. on them too much, but it's plain he has things to say. And he was talking to me, as listeners will hear, about the uh-huh. weaponization of news uh, and about the value of tuning out of some of that and the worth of looking more deeply at the information you're getting. I think we're all learning to sort of distrust the world around us just a little bit in terms of media and news these days. And so that was an enlightening uh, conversation. And what was the most rewarding about it was just how full of optimism and life the conversation was. It's one of two long conversations that I've had, one with... um, one with Simon, one just the other day with John Berline, the world's longest 10-minute podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also has that kind of thing drawing it. I got the same, a similar feeling, believe it or not. I was just listening in the car because guess what, listeners? I, you know, that's what I do. I was just listening in the car to you talking to the wonderful Elizabeth Hand. Of and that was a fabulous conversation. So there's all this stuff, Gary. And it keeps me coming back to science fiction. It keeps me coming back to the fact that as bad as things are, they don't have to stay this bad, and I don't think that we are at the end of all things. Despite the fact that, and I think this is fair, wherever you are, there are terrible things happening in some places, far more terrible than others. And the current situation in the United States of America is just absolutely terrifyingly strange. It is, and I think a lot of the things that I've learned from talking to people in podcasts parallel yours, but in, in, in somewhat different ways. Uh, for example, one of the things that came up um, – when I was talking to a couple of people, I think to Karen Fowler and then to Stan Robinson, is that what's happening mostly around the world now mm-hmm. in most places is a, a, a vast majority of the population behaving in a way in accordance with what science tells them to do. In other words, you have an enormous number of people, uh, by which I mean the lockdowns and the masks and the social distancing and this sort of thing, doing something because intelligent research suggests that's that what that's what they should do and this the, the attitude it's a very easy to ad- adopt a cynical attitude saying people are just going to do the wrong thing this is a really optimistic view but what if if you can get this much of the world's population to act in concert with reason yeah. on this issue could you possibly eventually get a large chunk of the population to act rationally when it comes to things like climate change for example I, I certainly hope so and i think there's look there's reason to reason to be reason to believe and you know i was heartened one of the th- books that simon ings discusses at length in, in the episode that we talked about is a book called humankind by rutger bregman and it's an interesting enough hmm. book that i went out no. and bought a copy right it's a non-fiction ah. book uh journalism looking into studies about the you know, human nature and how we report you know you know and expect the worst in people. It's, it's, it's You could synopsize it into the Lord of the Flies example. You know, There's Lord uh-huh. of the Flies, which really isn't about what people are talking about, but, but nonetheless, the plot of it is about boys who turn on each other in this situation. Yeah. And they've got the situation from 1965, I think it was, where boys were stranded on an island for a year, and that's not right. what they did. That they, they behaved better than, than you would expect. And this book 
uh, is an examination of lots of these kinds of cases, a re-examination, a reconsideration, a look at the re restaging of uh, psych experiments to see whether their outcomes really were reasonable. Fascinatingly mm. to me, and maybe to you, a re-examination of the 1964 Kitty Genovese case that led to Harlan mm. Ellison's story, The Whimper of Whip Dogs, which showed that, in fact, the reportage around that story was very poor. And people yes, didn't leave the right. young woman to die at all. That different things happened completely. There was a lot of support. That one of the problems is all the neighbors who were supposedly staying in their apartments, even though they didn't, to um, and ignoring it, was they were all calling the police urgently at that time. Yeah, they were. There was a separate book about the Kitty yeah. Genovese thing. And actually, Harlan was aware of that, but he didn't become aware of it until years after he wrote the story. Oh, sure. And, and look, he was creating fiction, which is a different thing. It wasn't a piece of reporting. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not trying to hold Harlan to account in any sense. But it's interesting that that proved to be the case. So, and it, so that, well, there have even been some research, I think, uh, that, that, that's looked at um, the famous Stanley Milgram experiment, uh, obedience to authority, and questioned some of the assumptions and the, the things. But that, in other words, there's a lot of research uh, about – um, which is emerging about decency, I guess, yeah. as, as a subject matter. And this goes back to something that I may have mentioned at some point on the podcast, but if it did, it was years ago and you've forgotten it and everybody else has too. <laughs> one of my uh, professors at the University of Chicago was a guy named Wayne Booth, who was one of the best theoreticians of fiction ever. He wrote a book called The Rhetoric of Fiction, um, but um, <clears throat> which – subsequently influenced even major novelists. Mm -hmm. That's not the book that he was talking about in, in the late days of his career when I knew him. He'd written a book <clears throat> with a really unappetizing title, only a University of Chicago Press marketing rep could even try to sell this title. The title was Modern Dogma and the Rhetoric of Ascent. Yeah. But the rhetoric of ascent was the key part of that because what he did was he looked first at literary criticism and then he looked at political criticism and he looked at criticism of science, criticism of history. He looked at the way we write about things. And in almost every field of endeavor, there is a much larger and more powerful vocabulary to write about the negative aspects of something than it is to write the, po the positive aspects. Yes. In other words, it's easier to rip apart somebody's other, somebody else's science than to confirm it, partly because you don't get any uh, brownie points in your institution if you're confirming somebody else's research. And as we have talked about on the podcast, and I've talked about with many other reviewers, it's so much easier to write a, a, an absolute blast of a terrible review than it is to write an intelligently reasoned positive review. That's absolutely true. And I think there's chal a challenge finding the time to come up with anything thoughtful and balanced and considered in a review context and to add the additional kind of analysis that you would hope might happen. You know, I was talking to to Simon and what he was saying at that point, he was having to write 40 short mini reviews of science, new science fiction books for oh. a publication he was writing for. I want you to con con consider having to write 40 single paragraph book reviews of anything and how you would bring any kind of nuance any kind of subtlety no. any kind of balance to it so you know reviewing is is a particular thing and maybe that's hopefully where this comes along you have a chance to maybe add a further layer of consideration and thought just as a quick aside as well a shout out to amal el motar and max gladstone who were j just were presented with the 
Nebula Award for Best Novella for This Is How to Win the Time War. Of course. Which is also up for the Locus Award and the Hugo Award and, and the Hugo, yeah, and the Award Award and every other award. Right. And, yeah. Anyway, so anyway, on with the show. Yes. So yeah, look, I I really, yeah, I I I think it's 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 difficult to find. I think actually nuanced conversation about science fiction. I was thinking today, and I think you would understand why. But I was thinking today about what constitutes science fiction news and conversation, and we've mm-hmm. been doing it for four hundred and sixty-two trillion episodes. And if you exempt awards, as as the nebulas we just touched on, um, and then you get down to well, what is there? There's vagaries of publishing and hopefully woohooing about some books. But mm. what is it at the deeper level to talk about? And hopefully there is a thing, but it all comes down to opinion as well. Because I was thinking about if you start talking about the, the, the state of science fiction, which is a thing we talk around about more than we talk about, I think. Probably. Um then you have to start defending what you think a good state of science fiction is. And I think that's challenging. Well, I think it's, uh, it's something that changes. Uh, it's a moving target uh, because obviously there is the, the classic golden age argument that science fiction is what I used to like or science fiction ought to be the sort of thing that made me fall in love with science fiction. The problem with that is you're not 12 anymore. And the sort of thing that really impressed you when you were 12 may not do so today. So so do you want newness or sameness? I mean, that's basically, it seems to me, the debate that goes on. Do we want um, old-fashioned space opera, or do we want something that uses the template of space opera to do something completely new and different and strange? I think that's uh, true, but I think it's also true that we're not working from... All of the people talking about science fiction aren't working from uniform assumptions. They're not no, deriving I, similar pleasures at times. And they're assigning quality to the ple- a qualitative assessment to the uh, to the pleasure they derived from from what they're reading, right? Which is not unreasonable. <laughs> I have done the same thing for most of my life, so it's not a critical statement. But you know, when I I've noticed, shall we say, that there is a thread of discussion amongst a particular demographic of people I talk to that science mm-hmm. fiction is not doing especially well right now. That it is not rising to the challenge of discussing the moment of being the best science fiction it could be. Amongst another demographic that I've been talking to, I hear that it is a vital, alive, vibrant, changing, evolving thing that is becoming more relevant and more useful every single day and getting better and better. And of course, they're both correct. Mm-hmm. It just And that's exactly what, what why, but, yeah. For example, it's one of the reasons that I have uh, always and always will resist uh, reviews that assign anywhere from one, two, four, five, ten stars. I don't like stars. If, if there was some way of, of, of publishing a review so that a certain audience saw some stars and other audience saw other stars, it might make sense. But when you put three stars or four out of five stars on a review, who's the audience that this review is for? Yeah. Or even worse, the old... Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down thing, which was popularized by a couple of film critics on television here in the States, uh, which basically is uh, it's, 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 it's almost criticism as interception. The idea that sure. you can stop somebody from reading this. But the fact is that there are very few books out there. There are books I cannot stand to read that have huge, enthusiastic, loving sure, followings. Course. But let me ask and you I'm not this. A, right, let me ask go, you this to interrupt because I would struggle. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be completely up front, I would struggle to answer the question I'm about to put to you, right? 
Okay. And so if you struggle too, I will absolutely empathize. <laughs> Can you articulate the criteria you use to assess whether a book is a good piece of science fiction or not? Can I articulate the... Okay, that suggests a set of criteria to be applied, applied uniformly to all books. No, no, it does not. It suggests that you as an individual reader may have a set of criteria you're applying, and I'm curious what they are. When you, re when you read Car by John Crowley, or if, mm. when you read The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday by Saad Hussain, when you read whatever it might be, somewhere mm. inside you there is, first of all, a response to it that is based on your intellectual and emotional response to the to the text and then that's filtered through your experience at reading literature generally science fiction specifically into reviews mm -hmm. do you feel you have a consistent set of criteria for assessing what you think good science fiction is and what are those criteria because this is gary is, wolf's is, criteria not the fields is this any different from asking me what my biases are um no though i suspect it's probably a whisker off in the sense of Hopefully what it's doing, it's talking about the characteristics of a text rather than your political and philosophical views. I think that's true. And and to, and to that extent, there, there are things and, – and you, since you've been actually editing my reviews for quite a while now, um, are, are as aware of this as I am. I like clean, good prose. I like prose which is not self-conscious, which is uh, – and, and, and some of the writers you've mentioned, we've mentioned Stan Robinson, we mentioned John Crowley. We could certainly mention Ursula Le Guin. There are any number of people who simply line by line are enjoyable to read. Before I know what's going on in the story, before I have the world building all laid out in front of me, I know that this person knows how to write sentences and paragraphs. Uh, now, that's a very traditional literary value. Another thing I will look for is I want the characters to be – Interesting in some way or another. Uh, they can be variations on uh, on archetypes. They can be uh, traditional uh, bad guys, witches, warlocks, whatever. But there needs to be something interesting about them so that they're simply not off-the-shelf characters. Um, what uh, Another thing that I think is very important in reading any text, and this is where it's, it's, it's not a bias toward any one particular value, but it's... The, the novel or the story should make clear where it wants to go so I can find out if it gets there. In other words, I don't think I would – I mean, I do this. I'm sure everybody does it. Yeah. I, I, I prefer not to judge a novel against some uh, – because it's not the novel I wanted it to be. Yeah. If, it turns out, if it turns out that this novel sets out to do something that I'm not interested in, I will set the novel aside and leave it to the people who might love that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but if it does set out to do something that looks interesting, um, and whether it does it in a technical way or um, uh, or, or in a more traditional way, like a, a lot of hard-boiled mysteries do, yeah. if it does it well, if it sets out to do this, and at the end I feel it does it well, I'll, I can I can have one of two or three reactions. One is that's pretty much what I expected. It was satisfactory. I'll probably have forgotten it in a week, but it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's something I think I didn't know it could be done this well, and it changes my entire notion of what, well, let's say a, a hard-boiled mystery or or a space opera could be, and that does happen occasionally. Uh, you know, it does happen when I when I years ago looking at Alastair Reynolds, I thought, okay, space opera is something different here, and uh, and and he convinced me of it, 
and there are far, the far future romance kind of thing that looks like science fantasy. Um, there's a lot of stuff that had been done with that before Gene Wolfe came along, and what Gene Wolfe did with it was, okay, you can take this template, and, and I'm going to make you think about it in a different way. And if I find my mind changed by a book, I'm going to be really impressed by the book. Okay. Can, do you think you can give me an example of a book you've read in the last six months hmm. that you thought was a standout book that you can give me the example of how it connects to your internal assessment criteria for what constitutes a good or an interesting or a recommendable book? I'm trying to think of books that, uh, and th th these would be books that I found surprising because I didn't know exactly what they were going to do. But I suppose the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned that was The Ten Thousand Doors of January. Yeah. It, it, it draws on a lot of traditional elements of fantasy. It does so very knowingly. There's a, a little bit of winking at the knowledgeable reader, but it's not, it's not nudge, nudge, you know, sure, sure, wink, sure. It's wink. Not kind arch, of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a no. It's 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 a it's a it's clearly written. It's 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 sentence by sentence. It's a lovely novel. It has really intriguing characters in it. And what it did with some familiar tropes of fantasy were things I didn't know you could do with familiar tropes of fantasy. Yeah. And so it made me think. Okay, this is a really interesting writer. Mm -hmm. That sounds reasonable. I mean, I, the example that was on my mind actually ridiculously. Mm. You'd think we'd coordinated this. Where in fact, were two books. Uh -huh. Um. The Once on Future Witches, which is Alex Harris' second novel. It's coming out in September or October. Which I've only just begun, in fact. Yeah. And which I fell in love with because I guess I fell in love with the characters up front. It opens with a brash, exciting introduction of a character. And I was immediately mm -hmm. grabbed by that character and by the setting and by how Alex unfolds a sentence and a story and draws you in. Yes. And as the setting exactly. evolves and establishes. And I had some slightly grown moments because it's the person, the reader I am. If you do something that I find predictable, like mm -hmm. I really liked Nora Jemison's The City We Became, but mm -hmm. I didn't like that she connected it to Lovecraft. I didn't find that particularly interesting or novel or whatever else, though completely mm -hmm. legitimate in story terms. Uh, for Harrow, it's like, well, there's a it's a, it's a book. There are three sisters. You met the three sisters by now, I would assume. Mm -hmm. One yes. younger, one a middle sister, and an older sister, and that then gives you, if you like, the three ages of women. And now that's the, the the sole part of my my groan. It's just a little bit cliched in that everything else is great. I love the book. And what you talked about surprise. One of the other books mm -hmm. that I'm championing, and I acknowledge that it's obnoxious to be talking about books that aren't published yet, and it is. Uh, but Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future, which mm. I don't think you've read yet. And I love the book, not because it's surprising, but in some ways because it's not. Here is a book uh -huh. that is emotionally powerful and engaging that gives you another, another angle on a similar t tale, really, if you like. You know, um, we, we, we have encountered disaster before. We've encountered Kim Stanley Robinson's views on uh, environmental change before, right? But here is an over, I think, an over, just a stunningly, brilliantly overwhelming introduction to the book. It's beautifully written. I think Robinson doesn't get 
credited often enough for what a wonderful line-by-line writer he can be, particularly by people who are distracted by the fact that he tends to use as a deliberate technique a lot of mm-hmm. info dump in the stories, a lot of a lot of textual, contextual information, mm-hmm. which is uh, delivered outside of the pattern of the story, right? Now, which he does brilliant. But this book is just an extraordinary example of what he does and is intellectually rewarding everything else. Now, I'll go so far as to say that Oh, quick break. Shout out to longtime friend of the, well, no, short time, but deep friend of the podcast, Sarah Pinsker, who takes home the Nebula Award for Best Novel for A Song for a New Day. Excellent. So congratulations and, to but, Sarah. It happened just now. I'm just now. And, and, and possibly the most timely Nebula Award for a novel ever, because you heard that loud buzz a few minutes ago. That was, that was my phone going off with the alarm that the Chicago, city of Chicago has just set a nine o'clock curfew to get people God. off the streets. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, yeah, we are we're now living in Sarah Pinsker's novel, which was was featured in Marie Claire magazine today. I know Marie Claire of all bloody things. Yeah. So look, what did I find rewarding? What were my criteria for a great novel? Characters, setting, uh, mm. idea. You know, I mean, yes, I'm going to be turned off by some ideas, and I may not pursue a book. Ministry of Future is resonant with my own politics. That's probably a factor, but. What I'm compelled by more than anything in that book, in 2312 and some of it stands others' books, are the characters. What I was compelled by in the 10,000 Doors of January was the, were, were the characters in the setting. Uh, even in, you know, Sarah Pinsker's terrific book, it's the character even more than the idea that takes me through. Mm. So, so, so that, that's the reader I am. So when I'm asked about the state of science fiction, I must admit, I think about character first. Has character changed? Eh, not so much. Um, I mean, yes, we're more inclusive, more, more diverse, and I, I, I get a lot out of that. Um, but it's, yeah, I don't think my criteria have changed that much in the last 10 years. Though I think the field has changed that much in the last 10, 10 years. Well, I, I think you established certain uh, expectations of certain kinds of science fiction. You mentioned, for example, that, that Kim Stanley Robinson will reconsider the same theme from different angles. Well, he started his career practically doing that with yeah. the three California's novels and the, the three volumes of the Mars trilogy, uh, even, even though the middle volume got a little heavy on philosophy for many people, was looking at the same issue from, from three different historical eras and three different areas. Um, and he, he looked at that whole thing again when he wrote Antarctica. True, true. Um, so he, so he, he, he keeps coming back to the same topics and uh, because the topics change not only does does the stand change as a writer but the whole uh, ecological theme is a lot different from it was when he wrote going back decades when he wrote uh, uh venice what was the venice drowned um which was the yeah. first one of the first stories i read okay let me i'm going to get in trouble now if i try to describe this because i've read a book now which i think is probably really brilliant but I don't know why it's brilliant, and I'm trying to figure out why it works. Um, and it's and literally, I've been put up, I've, I've postponed starting the review of this because I keep wanting to go back and look at the book and unearth more things from it. Uh, because technically, there's no doubt in my mind that technically this is an absolutely brilliant book. And conceptually, it's a brilliant book. And I'm trying to figure out does it actually work as a novel? Uh, and it's Susanna Clark's Piranesi. Which, yep. for 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 the benefit of anybody who's expecting anything at all remotely like Jonathan Strange and Mister Noel, put that aside. Yeah, the um, book was compared to to me was the House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski or whatever it is. 
that's something that comes to mind. The Gorman Gas Trilogy comes to mind a little bit. I mean, the the initial situation, which is there already in the publicity, is that a character who is called Paranesi by another character is living almost alone in an apparently endless castle, the lower floors of which seem to contain an ocean, uh, which periodically floods as the tides come in. Um, and he's he thinks he's one of two living people in the world. He thinks there are only like 17 yep. people in the world and most of them are dead. And he's, he's keeping very cat catalogs of these things. Yep. And before you get too far into it, uh, you're, you're, you're into a completely Baroque kind of fantasy world. Um, yep. that doesn't seem it, it, it's, it's almost like one of these existentialist fa fables, like something Samuel Beckett or, or, or Sartre would have come up with. Yeah. And at one point, though, he's looking at his old journals from from he's been keeping them for years. And uh, one of the older ones has a date on it. And the date is 2012. And that's just a brilliant moment where you suddenly realize, wait a minute, there is a connection here. Mm -hmm. And how are we going to unpack that? And she unpacks it brilliantly in ways that I, of course, will not discuss. Um, but that's the sense starts, of wonder moment. That's the sense of wonder moment. Yeah, Exactly. And then the thing unfolds in completely unexpected ways. And I, uh, and, and yeah, you, you look up, uh, you think of other novels to compare it with. You think of The House of Leaves. You think of Gorman Gast. You think of some of the trickster stories that Gene Wolfe has written. And from a technical point of view, yeah, it's, it's got some similarities with all those. Uh, and there are some resolutions later on that I don't find entirely satisfactory. But the simple brilliance of presenting things in the way she does, in the way it's a novel that's written almost backwards. Yeah, okay. And, and that kind of thing just really impresses me technically. And to be able to do that technically and keep the reader turning the pages. And then here's another uh, sort of test I have for novels. Mm -hmm. If when I finish the novel and I want to start writing a review of it or start yeah. talking about it to somebody – my first impulse is, well, let's go back and take another look at it because I'm not sure. In other words, I keep wanting to go back into this novel, even though it's not a very long novel. It's it's a third, if if maybe a quarter, the length of Jonathan Strange. Is it is it work to read? I just not. I didn't find it any work. I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And, and immediately you have okay, we have an endless castle with giant statues on the walls, and there are minotaurs here and there, so people are going to think this is you know basically Theseus and the Minotaur. There are all kinds of clues. Um, and that would be off-putting if it went on for too long. And that's why I think that the structure of this is the brilliant thing, because she paces this in such a way that mm -hmm. just as you've just about had it with this kid, uh, things start getting interesting in other ways. Well, I guess the thing here is what you're saying as well, is that, and this is, see, what I partly hear when I hear you talk about pacing and structure is that, mm -hmm. No matter what the story is, what, what, what you're choosing to talk about in your book, it must be engaging and entertaining as well. You know, the author must mm -hmm. be aware that we're in this strange, abstract piece of information transmission where the image in head down into paper through your eyes up into your head and something else. So it's got to keep you turning. And where I've sometimes uh, come, a, come adrift in the process is if it's too overtly clever or there isn't a clear path through. I mean, the genius right. of Kelly Link, right? The genius of Kelly Link, particularly at short length, is that she can take a very abstract story and lay out all of the little stepping stones through it that make it all work and combine and deliver to mm -hmm. you 
the intellectual, the emotional, the story payoff that it needs to. And it sounds like, and I'm not surprised because of the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, that in Piranesi, um, Suzanne is able to do the same thing. Yeah, I think she knows exactly what she's doing. And there, I guess this is this is the other thing we're looking at, are writers that surprise you. And I think Kelly Link is a good example. Another good example um, would be another friend of the podcast, Margot Lanigan, whose short fiction and whose novels, but I think it's more dramatic in the short fiction, uh, create a world which is odd and a language which is odd. But by the end of the story, it's all added together, and even the language begins to make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that you have a, a kind of complete and consistent narrative world that pays off, even if you try to explain, if you if you were to try to explain to somebody what the world, what the outside world is like in a Kelly Link story or a Margot Lanigan story, yeah. um, you'd have a hard time doing it because there really is no world outside the story. Are we making an argument in here for texts that are either reread or texts that are read by deep readers in the field as opposed to um, first-time reader, casual, occasional readers in the field. You know, I look at the work of John Scalzi, and he himself would proudly, happily, and correctly and reasonably describe his work as being for people who don't read deeply in the field. It is either mm-hmm. entry-level uh, stuff or it's uh, – and I don't mean that in any demeaning sense whatsoever – um, it's either entry level work or it's um, accessible work. You know, does something like Paranasi, does something like uh, the Ten Thousand Doors of January, does something like a mm. Song for a New Day, does, do, do those kinds of works sit where you in, in a place where you need to be into the field to appreciate them? Do you think? I don't think so at all. Um, I would say that's especially true of Paranasi. I think it's uh, it, it's especially it's equally true of uh, a Song for a New Day. Yeah, uh, I, I think if you're in the field, you tend to look at things uh, uh, in, in a sense of in a performative sense. In other words, when you look at I don't know the the, the business of uh, virtual presence in Song for a New Day. Yeah. You know, we've seen this before. There are even TV shows about it now. Uh, so you think does she handle this well? Does she do a good job of science fictional extrapolation? I think the deep reader in the field will start kind of looking at that and saying, okay, she did a good job of that. Okay. I'm going to say that the vast majority of readers don't really care whether she does a good job of it science fictionally. They'll think it's a neat idea. I think that's true. I, I see I, I, part of what I'm concerned about, right, is you and I are, I don't know that we're similar readers as much as we are readers that overlap in a Venn diagram space, right? Probably. But I, I would say that there are readers who, for example, will be classified as Bane readers, and that's seen, I think, incorrectly and unfairly in many ways, as synopsizing a particular kind of reader, a particular kind of story, largely because mm. superficially Bane are supposed to deliver a particular kind of uh, fiction to, to the readers, despite the fact that they are, you know, publishers of as diverse a range of writers actually as um, David Weber and Tim Powers. Yeah, right. Or, yeah, exactly. you know, whoever, right? So um, I, I think it's interesting to sort of break down this idea of what, what you need to bring to something to appreciate it and why it is that we do re- respond to different things. Why is it that within our own spectrum of, say, reviewers, to, to keep it to our own people mm-hmm. for, and by our own people and just not to put it on other people, um, that you have a Russell Letson who's plainly a space opera, military science fiction, hard science fiction mm-hmm. kind of reader. I would have said that's not the core of what you enjoy reading. Military SF, hard SF. 
though you do read Not it. really, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy a David Weber novel. It doesn't mean I don't like Don or Harrington when I see it. It just is not the, you know, it's what? Okay. He's, he's actually, okay. Those of you listening to us, we are seeing each other on a video screen and he's pointing at me. He's looking at me with gimlet eyes and pointing something at me because he thinks I've just lied. I didn't say that I think you've lied, but I don't think we've ever addressed the the uh, subject of your David Weber fandom. We just did, and that was it. Could I inquire it's, as to which fine. titles you they're might fine. have read I, no, in the, in the ample Weber oeuvre? I've not read all of David Weber, that's true. No, oh, no, 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 I no, read... no, no, I, I, nor have I. But have you read <laughs> one book? Yes. More than one. Two, maybe. And which and did you read? Huh? Which which book did you read? I, I don't remember. See, I, right, may, maybe I was reading. I started off. That sound outside has to do with the curfew going on in Chicago tonight because of protests, because of the murder of a uh, black man in Minneapolis, which is pretty much going to tell you what time we're recording this. Because the dystopia is now falling. So, okay, yeah. I read On Basilisk Station, which is the first of the Honor Harrington books. And I read them up to the point where they became very, very long indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I assume you probably, my, my guess is you read on Basilisk Station or something. Probably like that. that's the, that's that title. Yeah. That's a long very time. rewarding. rewarding. Very entertaining, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a, it's, it's a very powerful character. And I find, uh, it's interesting. I find Lois Bujold as a science fiction writer, particularly, I don't particularly mm. care for her fantasy to be, very entertaining and very thought-provoking. And I think the best of her novels are the best of science fiction or stand in the best of science fiction of the past half century quite correctly. You know, so. Well, when I talk about, okay, when I talk about things like structure and technique and tone, what I'm saying is, which sound like very snotty kind of lit crit things, but what I'm trying to say is that you can take a very familiar story, a very familiar set of ingredients, and you can present it in a way in which, uh, it seems, if not new, at least entertaining in a different way. Let me give you an example of yeah, sure. uh, take an example of something that I'm guessing nobody out there knows but me because it's a film that showed up uh, either on Netflix or Prime last night that I'd never heard of. I saw a couple of reviews of it yesterday. Yep, yep. I thought, I'll watch it. film called The Vast of Night. Yeah, Vast of Night is an extremely low-budget film, a science fiction movie, which presents itself even as an episode of a 1950s-style uh, Twilight Zone style show. And what the film is about is um, basically a UFO appearing above a small town in the 1950s. Now, that is nothing but cliche. Every <laughs> element of that is a cliche. The flying saucers, there, there are alien abductions in it, there are mysterious sounds in it, there are uh, uh, every single element of this is drawn from a hundred different stories and movies, and yet the film seemed original. It seemed seemed original because of the way the camera was used, of the tracking shots, the characters were interesting, the way the story unfolded. In other words, it was simply a matter of technique to make this pack of cliches into an entertaining movie. Mm-hmm. Without, by the way, with almost no special effects of any uh, uh, import. Do you think it's enough for a science fiction fantasy or horror or whatever novel to be entertaining? Yes, of course. Mm. Well, I, mean, I, I guess because, first of all, just the very statement, and it's not one that you use, so I want to be clear about that, mere entertainment, 
is a dismissive statement, you know, and yet I think that that's where science fiction comes from and is an integral part of what it is. And when it fails to be entertaining, it fails, doesn't it? I think it fails to be enter- well. Okay, entertaining is a complicated word when it comes to it. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, because I would say, for example, oh, let's just pick out your favorite singer. Let's say, let's talk about Bruce Springsteen for a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are great Bruce Springsteen songs, and aren't there some Springsteen songs that are just really entertaining? Oh, look, I think there's some some released. Bruce Springsteen songs that aren't even that. Okay, but let's 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 give them the entertaining. Let's give them. I mean, I could I, I could have said Elton John, but I I could have said no 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 Beatles, no no. I mean, it's it's fair. I mean, it's like saying well, also it's like saying you know if you look at the a, a, any writer with a long bibliography, not someone who's written a novel or two, but someone's written mm-hmm. twenty novels, say, there's going to be a qualitative difference across time. Surely, even any writer themselves would hope that their bibliography would have. Mm-hmm. A, a varying quality over time, hopefully on an upward angle, getting better and better as they learn more and more and improve their technique. Though that's actually not what tends to happen. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's worth keeping in mind that Graham Greene, who I think was one of the great British novelists of the 20th century, made a distinction between what he called his novels and what he called his entertainments. Uh, and his entertainments were his spy stories and his crime stories. They were terrific novels. Uh, but he didn't see them as being primarily that he didn't yeah. in other words he he put a lot of interesting character development and narrative technique into them but he thought the purpose was entertainment yeah. so my art my, my one response to what you just said is if a novel sets out to be a serious complex uh life's work and it turns out for the reader to be mere entertaining i would say that that might be a failure on the author's part if the author sets out to write a novel which is entertaining and it's entertaining. What's wrong with that? Nothing at all. Do you think that there's any correlation between quality and entertainment? Quality and... <laughs> yes, I'm, I guess and no. Uh, you, there's good entertainment and bad entertainment? No, I, I mean, guess what I mean is, it, is, talking... is something that you are more entertained by, in some sense, better than something you were less entertained by? Not necessarily. Yeah. Because entertainment is not necessarily the only thing you get out of fiction. And it's in the eye of the beholder slash reader, surely, of course. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here surrounded by books, and I would think it's fair to say that most of the people, you know, the writers who've written these, have written on a spectrum, and I've enjoyed them on a spectrum that may or may not correlate to what they thought the spectrum was. Um, well, and there are writers that... Uh, another good example is... Um, an anthology mm-hmm. and i won't mention any anthology or any editor in particular right here uh however when i'm reading an anthology uh there are stories that don't work for me as well as others there are stories which really surprise me and i think wow that was something and there are stories where i thought wow that was really entertaining and they're not all the, always the same story and it seems to me if you put together an anthology if it's going to be interesting to a broad spectrum of readers some of those stories are going to be there because mostly they're entertaining yeah no, no, I think that's that's fair, and a very entertaining story is a gift. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. This is interesting. So I don't know. I mean, to circle around and around, I'm going to sort of try and tie this off because otherwise we could go on and on and on and on as we have on and on and on for, mm-hmm. for years and years. 
Are you optimistic about science fiction right now? Of course. I mean, the, when you say optimistic about science fiction, you have to parse what we mean. Do we talk about the industry of science fiction? Do we talk about the economic health? Do we talk about how publishers are doing? I don't know enough to be optimistic about that. But by and large, it's never a good idea to be optimistic about publishing because it's always going down the tubes. See, what I'd say is I'm optimistic about readers' appetite for story, and that gives publishing a, a floor to help protect it. People want story in some form or another. I would say it, that. And they're I, going to continue. I would say, that. yeah. The other thing that makes me optimistic about science fiction, it's been, uh, it's been increasingly optimistic over the last few years, is that it's, uh, it's multiplicity. It has divided into many, many. It's a many-celled organism now, mm. um, and there's no longer a, um, there, there, there's no longer a committee that decides what science fiction is or what good science fiction is. If we go back to when I was a kid, there were three or four publishers, and you'd. You, you learn to read science fiction according to what they published. And I, I, I happen to fall in love with what Ballantine Books published. Sure. More than Phantom Books uh, or Dell or whatever. Now, there are so many voices and every and there are so many places for voices to be heard. So that science fiction, and, and we talk about diversity purely in terms of, um, of, of, of gender or, or race or sexual identity and that sort of thing. But diversity is all over the map. Diversity yeah. is international science fiction. It's uh, science fiction from other languages. I noticed that one of the things that Penguin is doing yeah. is reprinting some classic science fiction, uh, which is a great idea, but a couple of the novels are not even familiar to most English language readers. Sure. One is Andreas Eschbach's the, um, the, Hair, the Hair Carpet Weavers is the title they're publishing it under, but it was published by Tor several years ago under the title of Carpet Makers. I thought it was a terrific novel, yeah. and it just disappeared. So uh, and, and we've mentioned before that we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, Asian science fiction. We're seeing East Asian science fiction, South Asian science fiction. We're seeing Korean and Japanese and Chinese science fiction. We're seeing more African science fiction, and African some from South yeah. America. And now we're finally beginning to see some from, from Europe, which has always been there, but hasn't been translated that much. So there's so many there's so many places to see good science fiction and so many audiences for different kinds of science fiction that uh, it's... It's more it's more complex. You can't keep up with it. But I think yeah. it's more interesting than it's ever been. I'm delighted that you brought up the Penguin Classics of Science Fiction line, mm -hmm. which although it's disappointingly not, to me at least, branded in their standard classics form, is nonetheless a recognition of some kind of mm -hmm. the field. Can we finally stand down from this tiresome idea that we are somehow sitting in a ghetto? Is that finally over? Or are people still going to keep railing against that? Well, I mean, there, there's an argument to be made that uh, the Penguin Classics or, for that matter, the Library of America are just putting really nice furniture in the ghetto. Um, I've, I've heard that said, that it's, 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 it's a way of recognizing these people and no. yet keeping them. This, no, this, I whole, don't this whole discussion drives me bananas. That's why I brought it what? up. Because, I mean, come on, a science fiction writer this week announced, I bought a railroad. What are we talking about? <laughs> what? Ghetto are we in? Oh, we didn't win the Booker Prize. So what? I mean, you know, Hilary Mantel is not likely to win a Nebula. Can we move on? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, you didn't even let me finish the sentence because yes, I was going to segue around to exactly what you said. The, the ghetto idea is, is an idea which uh, was very real for a long period of time, and there are a number of writers whose uh, careers were damaged by it. There's no doubt about it. A number of first-rate yeah, writers from the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Um, has it has science fiction finally 
gained a, a level of respectability that sort of officially approved classics, not only the Library of America, which I'm partly guilty for, but the Penguin Classics, and I don't know who edited that. Or we could go back to the New York Review uh, of Books, sure. issue, reissues of Robert Checkley and that sort of thing. So th- this is a, situ- a situation which has been going on for some time. Um, yeah, and true. what I find what I find really encouraging about it uh, is not that we're just finally recognizing Le yeah. Guin or, or Gene Wolfe, who hasn't quite been fully recognized, but they're beginning to recognize people like Sheckley. Uh, yeah. And that strikes me that there there are people out there in in the if there is a gatekeeper world of of of, uh, of canonical literature, somebody's pointing out to those readers that there is a lot of classic science fiction that they didn't know about, and a lot of these. I, I think this is encouraging for a lot of people. I think it's even encouraging that yeah. uh, even though we haven't we haven't mentioned the Locus Awards, but one of the Locus Award uh, collections is R. A. Lafferty. Yeah. Um, and it's it's modern masterpieces of science fiction, but you know Lafferty also made it into the Library of America. Yeah. So so I think there is a sense not only that science fiction writers have a chance to move beyond uh, what used to be seen as barriers. I suspect we already see that um, with Sarah Pinsker. We see writers who have their careers straddling the mainstream in science fiction. We see the yeah. Carmen Maria Machado or the Brian Evanson. Uh, or, or increasingly, people like uh, like Liz Hand, for example, um, whose last novel is a mainstream novel. Next novel is going to be a kind of noir, although she tells me it edges toward science fiction. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, this is the other other hand. Um, there is a category that many science fiction writers, especially younger writers, want to stay in. And I've talked to writers, for example older writers who had novels published um, outside the science yeah. fiction community. They, were, they, they, they wrote a serious novel, which I, I, I've given the example since he actually uh, brought this up himself. Terry Bisson wrote a terrific novel about 12 years ago, maybe 18 years ago now. Maybe, I don't know. No, not that long ago. Uh, called Any Day Now. It's a very autobiographical yes, novel. Book. Not quite science fiction, not quite not science fiction, but it's a very clever autobiographical novel where things begin to go off into an alternate history. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the best novels about the 60s. Um, it was published, it, it, was, it was trying to get out of Terry Bisson's reputation as a science fiction writer. It was published entirely as mainstream. Didn't catch a lot of attention in the science fiction community where it should have caught attention. And didn't catch much attention in the mainstream community at all. Yeah. My guess is if that novel were published today, the publicist would know what to do with it. They would put it in a kind of this kind of shadow category, which includes, I don't know, Emily Sinjun Mandel, for sure, example, sure. and uh, it, it could do well. So I think the opportunities for science fiction writers writing mainstreamy things, that's healthier than it has been. And it's, it's very clear yeah. that for mainstreamy writers writing science fiction, it's fine. Nobody objects to that at all anymore. I guess the only area where people are suffering in public, well, one of the areas people are suffering in publishing has to be the Midlist. Because one of the sad things, I mean, it's a conversation mm. I had elsewhere, and I don't want to go into names too much because I don't want to be insensitive, uh, publicly at least. <laughs> but, you know, there are very fine writers writing good books who have come adrift from publishers because they, for whatever reason, the work don't, don't, doesn't appeal. And there are terrific books that are very difficult to place. You know, I will note with very little comment that as of this writing, at least, 
Jonathan Carroll, for example, is still looking for a publisher for his new novel in English. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you mentioned Paul McCauley, who's a wonderful writer who creates great books, mm -hmm. who struggles to get published in the, in the U.S. So, you know, the one change in publishing is that, that, that the mid-list writer really is, is getting squeezed. I think that's true. And a, a, another name we could mention, I don't think he would object, is that I, I don't think James Bradley's very, very important new novel has an American publisher yet. That's very, very true. Um, yeah. I've got a quick question for you. At the, at the top of the, at the top of the hour, Gary, the top of the hour, Gary, ah. introduce it coming from the, from the, from the two towers of the Cruise Street podcast. So tell me, are you in Barador or Orthanc? Because it looks like Orthanc from here. Pardon? Are you in Barador or Orthanc? Because it looks a bit like Orthanc from here. More like Orthanc. I have no doubt about that. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Well, look, I, I think we're at I'm the end of our hour, Gary. I mean, well, no, we've, we've, we've barely touched the surface. And besides, my city could burn down by the time we finish this podcast. I mean, hey, hey, literally. We, we are literally not going to podcast until Chicago burns. That does not seem like either a desirable or a sensible thing. Well, let me give you an example of Chicago optimism as related to science fiction. Uh, about, I'm going to say, three or four years ago, the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series in, yeah. in baseball. There are at least two science fiction stories, one of them by uh, W.P. Kinsella and another one by a local Chicago writer whose name escapes me, that dealt with a Chicago team finally winning the World Series. Yep. And in both cases nuclear holocaust breaks out in the bottom of the ninth inning to keep that from happening. So, so the idea, the, the Chicago idea of optimism is that we finally win a championship, but the world is destroyed uh, as, as a price. And the real characteristic of a Chicagoan is good price. We'll take it. No wonder we think your country's mad, Gary. <laughs> well, we're not. we are mad. And on that, as the pure product of America goes crazy, we'll call it top of the hour and sign it off. It's been great talking to you today, Gary. It's been great talking to you. We should do this more often. Let's do that. Okay. But for now, we Until are. Until next time, in a couple of weeks, the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>